Hello. Okay, it's ten minutes to eight. So I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of here by ten after. <clears throat> I ask you, my Father, in the name of Jesus, that you'll talk to us. And so we say, speak, Lord. Through your word, speak, Lord, by your spirit, but speak, Lord. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at the most complex book in the Bible, the book of Romans. It has been said that the first eight chapters, the focus of the first eight chapters is how to get right with God. And from chapters 12 to the end is how to live in the right way before the Lord. There's something about the book of Romans which the majority of people have totally missed. It doesn't matter how many commentaries you read, how many sermons you hear, there is something exquisite about the book of Romans which is either missed or totally overlooked. And it is this. <clears throat> Behind the blazing and brilliant treaties and theological principles presented by the Apostle Paul in this doctrin doctrinal documentation, there is a hidden theme. Oh, we, we know what the, the major outlines, we understand about the, the major principles, but there's a hidden theme. And the hidden theme is either ignored or unknown. And the hidden theme is the relevance of Pharisaic Judaism. Once you recognize that Paul is speaking quietly about that idea, you'll begin to see it on every page. The underlying principle behind the great expression of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love to us, there is the niggling question of where does Judaic Phariseeism fit in to all this. The hiddenness is a mystery. And yet, once you see it, you'll begin to appreciate it. In fact, I was reminded of this the other day, and I shared this story with the, the folk who meet with me on a Tuesday morning as we've looked at the book of uh, Obadiah. 
I was going to Starbucks a couple of weeks back, and as I drove into the parking space, as I opened the door to get out of the car, I heard a voice say, be careful. So I looked, and there was a very, very charming young lady. And she said, please be careful. I said, oh, I'm going to be careful. But why? She said, it's a new car. So I said, OK, I'll be careful. I said, uh, not just for, for your car's sake, but also for mine. <laughs> but then I looked and said, what kind of car is it? She said, a Fiat. <clears throat> she said, a Fiat. She said, yes, everybody's driving them. Well, I knew that I'd seen about three or four on the road, but the issue is this. Once you see something, or once you own something, you see it everywhere. It becomes part of It's the same thing if, uh, if you're wearing a new style of clothing and you see somebody else and say, oh, yes, everybody's wearing this kind of clothing. That's what happens in Romans. When you understand that underneath the surface and behind the scene, there is the question of Judaism, you'll begin to get a much better appreciation of the book. Last week, we looked at the Revelation, because I divide the book, seeing I'm on four weeks into four. Looked at the Revelation. Paul introduced himself. He introduced his readers. He introduced the Son. He introduced the Father, and he introduced the Spirit. That was the fivefold introduction that the Apostle Paul give, gives in the first 18 verses. And in those 18 verses, he says seven distinctive things about God the Father, that it's all about God the Father. In fact, I made the statement that if you look at the gospel through the eyes of John, you'll see it through the eyes of Jesus. If you look at the gospel through the eyes of Luke in the book of Acts, you'll see it through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the gospel through the eyes of Paul, as documented in Romans, you see it through the eyes of the Father. Each one has a different focus, each one has a different emphasis, and each one is presenting the same idea, but with a, a different accent. And so tonight I want to start looking at the, what I call the redemption. We've looked at the revelation, that was last week. Tonight we're going to look at redemption. I hope I can get through it. One minute to eight, I got 10 minutes to go. <laughs> the redemption theme goes from chapter one, verse 18, to the end of chapter eight. How to get right with God and how to escape the wrath of God is the major theme of this document and precisely these chapters that we are looking at. Now, there are three things which come into focus in looking at this redemptive expression. Number one is what I call the ghastly condition. 
It's not a nice word. I, I like the word ghastly. <clears throat> it's chapter 1, verse 18, and it goes through chapter 3, verse 23. Then I look at what I call the genuine conversion, which goes from chapter 3, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 27. Then there's the glorious confession, which is chapters 8, verse 28 through 39. So look with me at the ghastly condition. Say it with me. Let it roll off your, off your lips. The ghastly. <laughs> it's introduced in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul will soon let us know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in this, I want us to begin to look at it kind of systematically. First of all, most people resent and react to the idea of the wrath or anger of God. From their perspective, God is love. And that anger is beneath his character. They view anger as a weakness or even ethically wrong. However, there is no way in which you can look at God in an anthropopathic manner and say he is love without giving him the right to be angry. Because both love and anger are emotions which are very well known <coughs> to us. And here the Apostle Paul wants his readers of Rome to understand that God is indignant. And he's indignant at sin. And he's indignant at the fact of sin and the practice of sin. Now the, the Greek text gives a series of uh, illuminating words <coughs> pardon me, to describe what he calls sin or against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, the, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Use the term which is translated ungodlessness and it implies impiety or just being plain wicked. Do you know anybody who's just plain wicked? You know, we hear on the news so often of uh, people involved in terrorism and you wonder how on earth can they do what they do? They're just plain wicked. The last time I was in Israel, part of the news was that a young lady, a very, very beautiful young Palestinian lady, had walked in the bus and blew herself up, maiming and killing a bunch of, uh, of young kids because it was basically a school bus taking kids home. And you wonder, how can a person do that? 
It's just plain wicked. And God is angry. And God is indignant at that which is wickedness. But it also is the term in which it says, uh, in which unrighteousness. And unrighteousness simply means wrongness or injustice. That this is not just the nature. This is the disposition. That people who know what is right, but they choose otherwise. We have this in the judicial system in which you hear certain things, certain sentences being made, and say, how can the judge say that? Or how can he pass that? God is angry at every expression of injustice. According to the Apostle Paul, when you speak of anger in the terms of God's grace, it has both moral and spiritual implications. And here Paul goes on to speak of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And suppress the truth means keep it undercover. Don't let it be known. That you hide it from someone. When I was a, a boy, which is a long, long time ago. Yeah, they did have boys when I was a kid. <clears throat> Somebody did something in our school. And as a result of that act, we were all disciplined. At least the class in which I was in was disciplined. And um, in this act of discipline, you know what? Uh, the teachers simply said, at least to the master, simply said, now if you know what's going on, if you just tell me, I will deal with it appropriately and I'll let the rest go. Nobody knew anything at all about it. I was sitting in the front row. He looked at me, Evans, what about you? Don't know a thing about it, sir. Talk to the next guy, talk to the next guy, talk to the next guy, because I was in a boys' school. Talk to the next guy, talk to the next guy, talk. Nobody knew anything at all about it. And so we were all punished. We had detention, and we had, uh, in those days, one of the punishments was this. They'd make you write out a thousand times on a piece of paper, I must not do wrong. And so here we are writing out on a piece of paper. And they'd count them, you know. <laughs> you, you couldn't get away with 998 because the guy would count them and say, you didn't do it, do it again. Ooh. And you get cramped if you keep on trying to write, I must not do wrong. I'm... It turned out about two weeks later that there was a kid in our class, he knew exactly what had happened. And it came out by accident. And when he told one of his friends, they beat him up <laughs> for suppressing the truth. Because we all suffer the consequence of it. So then, of course, <clears throat> somebody went and told the master. And uh, so he pulls him forward and says, why didn't you say anything? And he said, sir, it is an accident. 
He gave the background of the incident. The guy, the master said, if you had given me the story, the correct story, no one would have been punished because it is an accident. But because you suppressed the truth, everybody got punished. And he said, what's more? You're going to be punished some more. <laughs> and of course, we were all very, very gracious young men in the class. We clapped with pleasure. <laughs> sick it to him, Master, sick it to him. <clears throat> now, the Apostle Paul deals with three kinds of people. I'm just going to mention one of them. But the Apostle Paul highlights three kinds of people. He highlights what I would call the rebellious guy. Then he itemizes two kinds of religious guys. I'm not going to deal with the two kinds of religious guys except to document them. One is religious by name, and the other is religious by nature. Now, we all know people who are religious by name. If you go around America and say, okay, what religion are you? I'm Christian. Good. You don't look like a Christian. When did you go to church last? Oh, uh, a couple of Christmases ago. How many been since? No, no, no. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't need to go to church. Christian by name. In fact, a well-known radio talk show host was, was asked the question, when did you become a Christian? He said, I've always been a Christian. I was born one. Now, if he said, I was reborn one, it would have been right. But say, no, I'm a Christian because I was born in America. <clears throat> Christian by name. But then there are, religious, there are religious people, not just people by name, but religious people by nature. They are devout. They're dedicated. They do all the things which is right. And in this context, you begin to see the place of Judaism. Because the Jews, those who were religious by nature, they did everything by the book. They were circumcised to show that they were people of covenant, that they belonged to the sons of Abraham. They attend the feast to show that they fulfilled the obligation to God. They sometimes made an offering and they certainly give alms. They were religious by nature. Paul deals in chapters 2 and chapter 3 with the religious element. I want to talk with the first kind. Because I want to underscore the deadly expression of the spirit of rebellion. Paul says, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know what's going on, but they deliberately hide it and hide from it. In fact, Paul uses the term phaneros. 
and use it on two occasions. Once it's translated manifest, to shine as a light, to expose or to reveal. And he says, it's been revealed to them and it's been revealed in them. In fact, it's based upon these verses of the Apostle Paul that modern apologists produce the five basic elements of, to substantiate the veracity of Christianity. I'm not sure if it's in your book, in your notes. I haven't seen your notes for a couple of hours. I didn't put it in. Hallelujah. How bright can you get? <laughs> Let me give them to you just in passing. Theologians and philosophers love to give 10 cent words. They can't use nice simple words. They're going to make it sound complicated and, uh, and that's part of the deal. But the five basic principles that substantiate Christian philosophy is what they call the ontological principle, the idea that God is found in every culture. Paul says it's revealed in them. That the cosmological principle, that is God is seen in the universe. He'll deal with that later. That the teleological principle, which is the evidence of design it's revealed to them. That the moral principle that God has set within the heart of every man and every woman, the idea of that which is right and that which is wrong. Even little kids know what's right and what is wrong. Look in their eyes. Or when they say, ah, uh ah, -uh, tears will come down their cheeks. Because they don't like you telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Then there's a psychological principle that God is known and can be experienced. That he can say, I know God. I know him. I sense him. I feel his presence. I know his power. And so Paul deals, first of all, with their cynicism. They suppress the truth. In our nation, at this particular time, the main thrust of the media is to suppress the truth. Both religious truth and political truth. They serve and function according to agenda. God does not appreciate that disposition. But notice also their corruption. And this is where I need to hurry. Because it's quarter after eight. <clears throat> Note what Paul says. Because they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to notice the cycle of depravity which is evidenced in these verses. For Paul is contrasting 
the propensity of devotion which our pastor talked about a little earlier. Revelation will always lead to reverence. Reverence will always lead to respect, that we are grateful. That is the upward cycle of knowing God. Every time we think about God and we get an understanding of God in a different light, it causes us to want to magnify him, to glorify him, because revelation will always lead to reverence. <clears throat> but look at the opposite. He speaks of not the increase of revelation. He's speaking of the suppression of it. And so note what he says. Disobedience, this was their decision, leads to delusion. Though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Delusion will always lead to darkness. It will under, underscore the fact that you'll make stupid decisions. Delusion leads to darkness. Darkness leads to deviation. And they change the glory of the incorruptible God and made it an image of corruptible men or some other kind of a four-footed creature. Darkness leads to deviation. Deviation leads to depravity. On three occasions, Paul makes the profound statement, therefore God gave them up. Or God gave them over. The first occasion is in verse 24. God gave them over to the sinful desires of the heart, to sexual impurity, etc., the second occasion is in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. They changed their natural relations with one another. And the third occasion is that the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So God gave them over to what? to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The idea, once you get on the treadmill of going downhill, though they are not cognizant of it, though they're not aware of it, though they do not appreciate it, they are losing their moral compass and their character is being destroyed. If you don't believe me, look at America. Things which we condone today would have been radically condemned 25 years ago. But they're not, con they're not content with it being condoned. They want it to be celebrated. You don't just condone what I do. You have to celebrate it with me. You've got to acknowledge that I have the right 
to do with the cycle of darkness. And what is that cycle? Well, I just told you. Let me read it. Delusion, disobedience leads to delusion. Delusion leads to darkness. Darkness leads to deviation. Deviation leads to depravity. They are not cognizant of what's taking place, but it's happening. And the only way that it can be stopped is for the Spirit of God to open the eyes of understanding and say, how did I get in this condition? I am sure. Though we've all sinned in various ways and in diverse manners. I know that when I was a mid-teenager, I lost my faith. I not so much lost it, I abandoned it. I swallowed what was being taught, hook, line, and sinker. And I didn't understand how the cycle of deterioration was taking place in my mind and in my life. One day I heard my mother say to me, how did you get to become like this? This is not what your dad taught you. My dad was a pastor. This is not how dad has lived before you. Out of respect for her, I said, I understand, but I didn't. In my inner mind, I thought, she's nuts. I haven't changed. I didn't know. The deterioration that takes place in the life and the heart and the mind of an individual until you're awakened by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul deals with firstly that cynical or that rebellious individual. Then he goes on to talk about the other two characters, the one who's religious by nature and the other who's religious by name. From there, he brings me to the second idea. So that I can understand, I'm in, now in the middle of chapter 3, that man, that Paul underscores man's sinful character, for we have previously charged, he said, both Jews and Greeks. Why do you say Jews? Because the underlying theme that he's having to deal with is the subconscious theme, is that of Judaism. And so here he's speaking not only to the Gentiles, he said, because I want you Jews to understand too that you have a problem. It's not just a Gentile problem. So he goes on to simply say, like a savvy attorney in verse 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. Any self-serving Jew would have challenged him. 
You remember Jesus gave a parable of a Pharisee and a sinner who went to the temple to pray. The sinner sat in the back row. I wonder if that's always true. <laughs> naughty boy. Naughty, 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 naughty boy for suggesting that. It doesn't always happen, but it does on occasion. On this occasion, <clears throat> the sinner sat in the back row. And the, uh, the Pharisee was sitting in the front row. The Pharisee gets up to pray. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Now, if I'd heard a guy pray like that, I would have said, thank you, God, he's not like me. But he goes on to brag about himself. I fast twice a week. That means to say he didn't put sugar in his coffee on, on, t on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. Because that was a major fast in their mind. He said, I tithe. Yeah, he even tithe of mint. The small herbs that he picked in his garden. He said, I'm certainly not like Just imagine how that fellow felt. Here, this pious hypocrite standing, spouting off puerile and pusillanimous political propositions. <laughs> and the guy looked at him and said, I'm not like other men. And the sinner in the back, he couldn't even raise his head. He said, Lord, be merciful. To me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. The other man went home just as he came in. No change, except he'd gone down a little further in the spiral of self-delusion and self-deceit. The sinful character that is not righteous, verse 11, there's none who understands. All have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. He also underscores man's sinful conduct. And he quotes from the Old Testament some of the activities, the sinful activities that goes on. But he also underscores man's sinful condition. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, underscore the Jewishness of the issue, to those who are under the law. Speaking of either Torah law or speaking of the oral law. He's speaking to Jews. You'll find it emerging all the way through the book that Paul deals with the Jew, with his need, as well as the Gentile, with his. But that's not the way people normally read the book of, of Romans. And so he simply says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the law was restrictive. 
It showed people what not to do. It was not redemptive because it could not change the nature or the character of the individual. And so we come to the end of that first idea, the ghastliness of the condition. All have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now look at the second idea. And it goes from chapter 3, the latter part of chapter 3, to the end of chapter 8. And I'm going to have to hurry through this. Look at what I call the genuine conversion. I'm not talking about sentimental conversion. I'm not even talking about philosophical conversion. I'm talking about that life-changing expression which comes from Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in which something happens deep within. Not just in your head, but also in your heart. There are many people who give assent to the gospel and to the claims of Jesus, but they don't live it because it's not in their heart. Whenever a person is born again, it happens not only to change their mind, it changes their heart. Something comes alive in that individual, and we all know what it means. D.L. Moody used to say it this way, and I think this is in your notes. Yes, it is. Repentance implies a change of mind. It's an act of the will. I have decided to bow before the claims of God. Conversion is a change of life. When I was a boy, we used to sing a song. Uh, I forget it now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to Jesus. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love much more have come to stay. Things are different now. I am changed, as you can see, since I gave my life to Jesus. Salvation, conversion, is a radical change of life. A friend, if there's, not, if there's no change in life, you can say, well, perhaps it's in the head, but it hasn't yet changed the heart. Repentance, change of mind, conversion, change of life. Regeneration is a change of nature. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love much more have come to stay. The things I once loved, I now hate. When I was in rebellion, I reveled in cutting people down to size and arguing against their faith. Oh, what a fool I was. An absolute idiot. I thought I'd been bright. I just being stupid.
stupid. Regeneration, a change of nature. Justification, a change of state. Because justification, the quaint old way of saying it is just as though it never happened. I am a justification you pronounce, the guilty are pronounced guiltless. And that's not because the attorney general, that's, sorry, that's not because the defense attorney gets up to the judge, my client is not guilty. It's because the judge says, I've heard all the evidence, he's guilty of sin. But, but, because of another, he's free. That's what justification means. Adoption, I've been changed, I have a change of family. No longer am I Welsh, I'm now a Texan. <laughs> and you can tell by my accent, though the Oklahoma accent still lingers around quite so often. Sanctification underscores a change of service. I now serve the Lord, not serving myself, certainly not serving Satan. I'm serving the Lord. And so Paul begins to underscore the dynamic of this conversion. How many of you are saved? One or two? Good, 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 good. It pays to get saved. It really does. It's worth being saved. Not only for the now, but for the hereafter. Look at what I call the providential provision. This is what is normally or usually called justification. Justification is the legal act whereby Father God declares the guilty guiltless. The prosecutor has laid forth the accusation. There is no defense. I know, he knows, everybody knows I'm guilty until someone raises a hand. It's a nail-scarred hand. And for that nail-scarred hand, the voice says, Father, look at him through this. And the judge says, not guilty. And I say, whoopee. <laughs> That's about as Christian as you can get. Whoopee. I have a friend. Uh, sorry, I had a friend. No, I have a friend, but he's a distant friend. He came to speak in this church on a couple of occasions. He was very, very eccentric. I seem to gather those kind of people around me. <laughs> They're trying to make me mystical. And um, this friend was, he pastored a very, very large church 
in uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. And the folk were very excitable, as Latinos are, and you know, they shout out, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, Gloria a Dios, and, and you, you know, all this is wonderful. And one day, he heard the Lord say to him, do you think they know what they're saying? And uh, my friend said, I don't know. He said, well, try them. And so the next Sunday morning, one Carlos Ortiz gets up and tells the congregation, and there are about 7,000 people there. As from this morning, we're not going to say praise the Lord. We're not going to say hallelujah. We're not going to say gloria a Dios. He said, we're going to find creative ways to praise the Lord. That way, we know that you're thinking about it and you're expressing yourself in uncommon language. You're not religion, religiosity. The folk looked at him. One of the deacons said, Pastor, Are you on medication? <laughs> you can't say that to a congregation. You can't say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, glorious. You can't say that. What else is there to say? Well, he went on with his message. And usually, you know, they, very, they shout out, preach it, pastor, hallelujah. Nobody's saying a word. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a tramp, a homeless guy walked in and listened to the good news about Jesus. And suddenly yelled out in the toughest voice, Hot dog! That sounds good to me! <laughs> Hot dog? Hot dog? One Carlos almost fell off the platform. And the man walked down with his hands raised to heaven. Tears rolling down his cheeks. He said, I've been listening to what's been going on outside. And he said, I was telling God, God, you know, it's easy to, to give quaint slogans. Anybody can give slogans, but they don't mean it, do they, Lord? And he said, I heard what you said. I thought, uh-oh, what's going to happen in this large church? And he said, suddenly... I felt the presence of the Lord come and say to me, your sins and your iniquities are forgiven. Walk in peace. He said, hot dog! <laughs> I do not recommend you cry out hot dog in church on Sunday morning. 
If you do, <clears throat> my membership will be transferred <laughs> to somewhere deep in Mississippi. <laughs> and I'll be given a one-way ticket. Christianity is life. It's alive. It's not just being sloganizing. It's not just doing that. It's open to the expression of your heart. Sometimes the expression of your heart is a tear. Sometimes the expression of your heart is a simple nodding on a smile. Sometimes it's a bursting forth of adoration and praise. Sometimes an expression in other tongues in which I come from deep in your being, in which you're glorifying the name of Jesus. Justification. The favor, favor is the source for justification. We're not justified because we deserve it. We're not justified because we earned it. We're not justified because we bought it. We're not justified because we fought for it. We're justified because of favor. And this favor is an expression of the genuineness of God the Father. But now, the righteousness of God. That high and holy standard, which is so far above all of us, has been granted unto us. What was promised in the Old Testament is now being given in the new. Look at the no novel process. It happens by faith. People misunderstood and people misrepresented. The teaching of Paul, Mr. Say, you mean all you gotta do is believe? Yes. That's all you have to do. You repent and believe to receive this new life. It happens through faith. But you understand you're believing in someone. And you're believing in what someone has done. That he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash away my sin. But now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. For Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. You also speak not only the gentleness of the Father, but the graciousness of the Father. Because Paul understands and underscores the fact being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a covering by his blood. We are justified. That's a legal term. We are redeemed. <clears throat> That's an economic term. It comes for the market. How much is that? 20 bucks. You get the 20 bucks, you've got it. 
It's yours because you bought it. We are redeemed not with silver or with gold, but we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And the redemption that we have is not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. It costs the Lord Jesus Christ his life. But then he gives you another word. We are forgiven. And if the first is a legal term, the second is an economic term, the third is a liturgical term. It comes from the Old Testament principle of covering. It's covered. Oh, I, I, I got a story about this. I went to a boys' school, and the discipline was extremely strict. And um, because it was coming towards the end of the war, I don't mean the Boer War or the First World War, I mean the Second World War. Because it came towards the end of the war, fireworks had begun to emerge in the marketplace. Now, I'd saved up some money, and I bought a Roman candle. Put that big, put that round. So, being a wise young man, I took her to school. <laughs> uh, being a wise young man, I uh, put it on, uh, on the window ledge. I lit the thing. <laughs> and uh, not uh, uh, being stupid, the thing fell over. <laughs> and it not only fell over, but the flame burned all the paint from off the, the bottom of a freshly painted window. Just in time for the headmaster to walk around the corner. And he saw what the stupid kid had done. Who did it? I did, sir. Meet me in my office immediately. If I'd been wise, I would have, been, I would have put books down my, the back of my pants. <laughs> but I didn't. And he gave me a number of the best. I had a corrugated rear end for several days. And there's no point in going home and, and complaining to dad. I might have gotten some more. <clears throat> and so this, uh, he was uh, a disabled squadron leader from the Royal Air Force. And he was angry because he'd been disabled. He'd been shot down in, in conflict. And so to be stuck being a headmaster of a school was not his uh, idea of a, of a joyful life. And so he made it as miserable as he possibly could, and now he has a special candidate, me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You know, I wanted to say, I think you've already done enough. <laughs> but I, I didn't say a word. He said, uh, I'm going to check and see how much it's going to cost. 
for that window to be replaced. I thought, replaced? I just burned the paint off. I said, get out of my sight. I'll see you outside in half an hour. I go outside, and as I walk outside, I'm limping. <clears throat> and I bump into one of the painters, and he said, what's up with you? Oh, I said, uh, I'm the guy that burned the paint off the window. Oh, he said, yeah, the kids thought it, it was fun seeing a Roman candle going, going up like that. Too bad it fell over. I said, yeah, it is too bad it fell over. <laughs> ah, he said, don't worry. I said, it's okay for you. He said, don't worry. He said, he'll be out in half an hour. He said, uh, it's okay. Don't worry. So I went back. I went to the classroom. Sat down very, very gingerly. <clears throat> because the blessing I'd received. <clears throat> Half an hour, I get permission to leave the class. I gotta go outside to see the monster. As I'm walking around the corner to where the event took place, there stands the monster. He's looking. The window is perfectly painted. Growls, he snarls. Sure, it's your lucky day. I thought, lucky day? <laughs> huh? He said, for I was about to suspend you for a week. He said, but see that it's covered. Go back to your class and don't do anything stupid like that again. No, sir, no, sir, I promise, I promise. I limped back to my class. When it came to lunchtime, I looked out for, the, for that painter. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, it wasn't, it wasn't any big deal. He said, it's easy to do. I want you to know, when I look up towards heaven, and I look at my sin, I say, thank you, thank you. Thank you. The response that comes from heaven is not, it was easy to do. Because it was the most profound thing that had ever happened on planet Earth. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world back unto himself by dying upon a Roman gibbet. That is the excellence and the extravagance of his amazing grace. Hallelujah. But we also notice that not only is the favor the means, the method is by faith. We have to believe him. Believe in him. Believe on him. In fact, the Apostle Paul asked the question, because justification is a gift. No one has the right to boast. Justification is a gift. It's received by faith. You can't purchase it. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way, sola gratia, sola fide, 
solidio gloria. By grace alone, through faith alone, and for God's glory alone. Judaism is a gift. It's on the grounds of faith. And so Paul underscored the fact only God can declare a person righteous. And he does it through a new law, the law of faith. And he makes this statement in verse 30. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jewish factor, and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul is invoking the most sacred term known to the Jews. It's the Shema. Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. Share, O Israel, Shema. The Lord, your God, is one. <clears throat> Echad is not a mathematical term. <clears throat> it's not one, two, three. Echad is a unity term. When it says of man and woman, and they shall become one. It's not that one dissolves and or morphs into the other. It's that they have become united in heart, in mind, in spirit, and in flesh. And so Paul underscored the glorious fact. And then to substantiate it, and I'm through, I have to close. To substantiate it, he spent the whole of chapter four explaining to the Jews who simply said, no, you have to earn it. You get what you get by keeping the law. That's the only way it can be earned. And Paul simply says, well, look at Father Abram. Before the law was given on Mount Sinai, he was justified how was he justified? Because he believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so favor is the source. Faith is the means. But fruit is the result. Wherever there's a life that's been changed, and a life that's been transformed, it has to be evidenced. And you know, one of the amazing, one of the lovely things that I've been privileged to witness over all the years is to see the way that people grow in grace and grow in love. Started with, but not exclusive to, Teen Challenge to see the radical change because we're all in the process. We've been changed from grace to grace. We are growing from revelation to revelation. We are being transformed into his likeness for the whole purpose of this is that we shall be like Jesus. Romans is the magical book which explains the process. And I apologize 
for having settled so poorly to you tonight. But just because of the poverty and the poverty of my language, do not forget, the Lord has done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. Once we were blind. But some of us see through an eye, one eye. But it's okay, we're seeing. Because of what the Lord has done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your redeeming grace. Thank you for your protective care. Thank you for your redemptive love. I pray tonight that your hands should be upon us for good, for I ask it in Jesus' name. The folks said, 